Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There are three kinds of yeses. To understand how to master the no triggers, you first got to understand yes. And there's commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit yeses. Those are the three types. Now, typically, we are pushed so much to give confirmation yeses that lead us to commitments that uh, a yes is typically a trap. So if I try to get you to say yes to something based on a closed in a question, your first thought is, what am I letting myself in for? Where is this going? He's obviously taking me someplace. I'm not sure I want to go. You begin to step back. You become defensive immediately. When defensiveness is triggered, you're not listening to me as much. Now, I first got onto this idea um, because a book that I read that had a lot of influence on uh, impact on my thinking back in 2002 was this book called Start With No. And I, the, the title stopped me in a tracks, in my tracks. I said, start with no. No is the enemy. I mean, how could you start with no? So I went and I got the book and I leafed through it. And the guy, Jim Camp, who became a friend, his whole philosophy was make the other side feel like it's okay to say no and they'll relax. And then they'll listen to you more. Just let them know it's okay to say no at any time, which, of course, is true. When you stop trying to trap the other side with yes, and you let them know from the very beginning they could pull back at any time, then they'll feel less trapped and they'll talk some more. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age? led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition. They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Chris, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really happy to be on with you. Yeah, it is really, really cool to have you here. You know, um, I came across you by way of Ryan Holiday and Brent and the folks who I know are working with you on your book. And when they said you're an FBI hostage negotiator, my movie went, my mind went to the movie, uh, The Negotiator with Kevin Spacey, which I'm guessing you might have seen. I have. Uh, And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I want to talk to you, Chris, because that sounds fascinating. Um, so before we get into all of that, I want to start with a question that I haven't asked before. Or maybe I have, but don't remember. What is the most important thing growing up that you learned from either a parent, a teacher, or a coach that has ended up having an impact on your life and the work that you do today? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think everybody, without without explicitly saying it, uh, all the people around me had good moral compasses. Um, so, you know, hard work and do the right thing, for lack of a better thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe throw and figure it out. I mean, I come from a, you know, a, a very um, bl- blue-collar uh, background, uh, Midwestern, which is also a very pitch-in culture, I realized when I had some friends visiting from Los Angeles. And it's a, a place where you pitch in and you figure it out and you help each other out. And, and you know, you have a, a moral compass there. You don't really wear it on your sleeve, but right and wrong mm-hmm. means a lot to you. So the, kind of those three things combined, I think. Mm. Is there any experience early in your life that planted the seed for you deciding to go into law enforcement? Um, not, not real early. Uh, actually, in, in my mid-teens, uh, which I, you know, I consider early, like five-ish. But in my mid-teens, I saw a movie about a couple of cops in New York City. And these guys were just wildly creative. And they had a lot of fun at the same time. And they happened to be doing something that was, was a good thing to do. But I was really kind of blown away with how creative these guys were. And, and that was when I decided I wanted to go into law enforcement. 
So walk me through um, the, sort of the journey from where you are to being a hostage negotiator, because I know that you didn't start out doing that. Like you don't walk out of college or walk out of the decision to you, you don't go from a decision to law enforcement to FBI hostage negotiator. I know it's quite a long trajectory. So I'm just you know really curious to hear about the trajectory and what informed your decisions to go down that path along the way. Well, it was mostly, you know, the the best things in my life have happened to me as as, uh, as a result of bad things. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm I'm at the point now where like there's no such thing as a bad thing because I feel like it's just uh, leading me something even better. But uh, you know, uh, well, Trump want to be in law enforcement. Uh, I decided to study martial arts in college. You know, I sort of, because I wanted to be physically capable and in the process of trying to learn uh, this uh, Korean discipline called Hapkido, I tore my knee up pretty badly. And um, and even though they did a nice job putting it back together, when I was when the FBI was on a SWAT team and I re-injured my knee again. And so then instead of staying with it until my knee was totally destroyed. It got put put back together for the second time. I thought, all right, well, I'm going to keep this up to the knee is shot. Or, you know, I like this crisis response. I, I like responding to crises because I like that decisions have to be made. Mm-hmm. And so we, I knew we had hostage negotiators. I didn't know. I didn't know what they did. I figured, you know, how hard could it be? I can talk. You know, I could be a negotiator. I think I was I was watching a Jimmy Kimmel uh, 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 skit a little bit earlier today, and you know most people think if you can talk, you could be a talk show host, or you could or you could host a podcast. Uh-huh. When in fact, it's there's a heck of a lot more to it than that. Being a good host, being a good interviewer. But I figured I could talk, so I could be a hostage negotiator. And I tell a story in my book about how I went to volunteer and sort of self-presented to the woman who was running the hostage negotiation team in New York, and uh, she just she basically told me to go away <laughs> <laughs> because I just figured, you know, yeah, I could do that. How hard could it be? Uh-huh. And uh, and interestingly enough, you know, uh, I think one of the things that I learned growing up was ask somebody how to do something who knows how to do it, and then do what they tell you to do, which seems really obvious. Right. But a lot of people ask questions and don't don't ask the right people, but don't follow the advice. And she told me uh, when I said, look, there's got to be something I could do, because she completely rejected me. Uh-huh. And I, she said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. Go volunteer on a suicide hotline. Now don't bother me again until you've done it. And I went and did it. And, uh, you know, I came back to her, and she was shocked. She said, I tell everybody to do that. Nobody does it. And my thought was, well, you know, I asked. Mm -hmm. And uh, it made all the difference in the world. And that really began the hotline time, really introduced me to the differences in actually listening to people. And then how ridiculously powerful it could be to be able to listen between the lines with somebody and just have extraordinarily extraordinary influences on what their thinking is. Mm. Okay. Um, before we get there, uh, I want to ask one other question. So, you know, I, I also know that you worked, uh, you know, according to your bio, as a, a New York City beat cop. So, uh, one of the things that I've always been curious about, because I think, you know, for us, most of us listening, our perceptions of what law enforcement does are unfortunately shaped pretty much by movies. You know, like in movies, law enforcement is, is glamorized or vilified. Like there's no sort of in between. So I'm curious, based on media, movies, and, and all the things that we get exposed to, what misperceptions do you think that people have about law enforcement? Okay. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to jump into that. And if I could, that get, gets mixed up a lot because I worked with NYPD. Mm-hmm. 
but when I was an FBI agent, I was actually a beat cop in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. okay. So, um, I mean, the, the stereotypes are there even among cops. Like every, every cop thinks, well, I'll tell you why people be, become cops, and they have a tendency to tell you why they became cops. You know, cops are, by and large, cops are really about good stuff. And they tend to be uh, uncomplicated people um, because they're, you know, they want to help. The vast majority of cops want to help. And the ones that that are there for bad reasons, I mean, they ended up getting getting kicked off of police departments fairly early anyway, and they never last. The stereotype... Cops are very harsh. They become it's a it's a job that tends to jade people. And if you had a bad experience with a cop, you want to say, well, you know, that that cop didn't like me. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, that cop got to the point where he just didn't like people who weren't cops. And and it's a it's a it's really hard on people emotionally. And maybe they're lucky enough fairly early on in their career to come across somebody that helps them sort of write themselves emotionally. I was, I was first few years I was a cop. It is an adrenaline charging, uh, job. You know, you are, you, your life gets risked one way or another on a fairly regular basis, which tends to give you an, an, an adrenaline jolt, jolt. And, um, adrenaline junkies across the board are very hard to get along with, whether it's an athlete, whether it's a special forces guy, whether it's a cop, you know, whether it's a mountain climber, uh, getting charged with adre- adrenaline on a regular basis is very addicting and, and it, it doesn't make you good at talking with people. So, and, and I, I was probably pretty heavily duty adrenaline junkie a year, year and a half onto the job. And then I ran across a couple of police officers who were just really good at talking to people in gentle ways. And, um, and so I was lucky to run across those guys and watch these guys work magic on the street uh, without being harsh. So, you know, I think uh, the stereotype against cops is that, um, it, you know, if you're black, you don't like black people or uh, because a cop treated you bad. Um, so it's really easy to jump to stereotype conclusions of police officers based on how they treated you. When in fact, um, cops, our hearts are in the right place and they just tend to be somewhat jaded and it's not you. It's them struggling with how difficult the job is, mm-hmm. if that's an answer to your question. That is. Um, and it also raises another question. Uh, you know, I recently had a guy here who was a venture capitalist who had started a tech incubator instead of uh, San Quentin prison. And I got to go to San Quentin prison uh, as a byproduct of that and kind of see, you know, what is happening there. Um, I'm just really curious about, you know, what your perceptions are of our correctional system as somebody who is a member of our law enforcement. Do you think there are problems with it? Do you think it accomplishes its job? I mean, what do you think needs to change about it? Um, I, I, by and large, in, from a worldview, our correctional system is pretty good. Uh, there are a lot of societal, it's hard for us to measure the problems we don't have because of the correction system. Mm-hmm. But uh, a problem we don't have, because the correction system was a, co- a component of that, is uh, the U.S. had a kidnapping problem. In, in the mid-30s, kidnapping was a crime that happened on a regular basis. Now, legit kidnapping in the United States, um, where, uh, and I would say it's not bad on bad, it's not one criminal kidnapping another, but a criminal kidnapping an innocent person happens in the entire country about once every five or six years. 
they're extremely rare events, even though they might happen in movies all the time. In the 30s, we, this country had a legitimate kidnapping problem, and it was solved by a, uh, uh, about four part, a four-part move by the country's leadership. One of those parts was incarcerating people for extremely long periods of time. Um, that's not the only answer to any given problem. So our prison system is designed to eradicate problems by putting people in jail. It tamps down some problems appropriately. There are other problems that we're still dealing with societally that need help. Mm-hmm. The prison system needs help taking care of. It's not. We can't say, well, our prisons are bad because it hasn't eradicated the problem. Sure. Our prison system is pretty good. It just needs help from other areas. And I'll give you another great example right now because the Olympics are in Brazil right now. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter what you did. Literally, you will not do any more than 10 years in prison for anything in Brazil. You kill 50 people, chop them all up, and sell them on the street as barbecue. You're not going to do any more than 10 years, and you're probably going to do less than that because their prisons are so massively overcrowded that there's typically 40, 50, 60 people to a cell that's supposed to hold 10. So they have prison outbreaks on a regular basis because they don't have enough prisons. They don't have enough guards. Mm-hmm. Now, you've got a guard in Brazil who's guarding a cell that's got 60 people in it that was meant for 10 people. And he's got to move them by himself from one location of the prison to another occasionally. When he opens that door and those 60 people head for the exits, he either dies or gets out of the way. So they have prison breaks on a regular basis. So even if you got sentenced to 10 years in prison for killing 60 people, you're going to be put in a cell with 60 other people, and there's going to be a prison break inside of two or three months, and you're going to get out. And so they have a lot of problems beneath the surface in, in, in Brazil that they can't deal with mm-hmm. because their prison system is not holding anybody in jail for any length of time. So, you know, that's a comparison prison to the, to the American prison system. Okay. So, yeah, there are there are societal problems that our prison system is not eradicating. And, and it's not because the prison system is bad. It's because the prison system needs help. Mm-hmm. Now, the prison system is, in fact, um, overall, that it, it, it's a school for crime. And once you've done any serious time in prison, it's extremely unlikely that you're ever going to be a productive citizen again. Those guys are those guys who come out of prison and become productive citizens are unicorns. Mm-hmm. They happen. Um, one of the, one of the uh, I, I heard a talk last year, and I wish I could remember the gentleman's name, but he's one of the head chefs, maybe at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he credits prison with saving his life because he was a drug dealer and he was lucky enough to be incarcerated with a lot of the white collar criminals from the Michael Milken days. And he was an entrepreneur at his core. And he was, and, and uh, instead of learning crime in prison, he got in prison with guys who were great businessmen and they taught him business and turned him around. And that is a very rare and regrettable uh, that it is rare event because I wish our prisons were more about rehab than they are mm-hmm. and more about um, rehab, you know, getting people prepared to come back out in the real world. But by and large, uh, you know, they're actually unions don't want prisons to rehabilitate people because they would compete, create a competing workforce. 
So by and large, our prisons just house criminals without making them any better. It does make them worse. That is a problem. But by and large, across the board for the society that we deal with and the problems that we're asking our prisons to solve, I think our prisons are good. Interesting. You know, the reason that question came up for me is because I saw this Michael Moore documentary recently, and I know Michael Moore is as sensationalist as it gets, and, you know, he'll spin things in his own way, but he showed prisons in European countries like Norway and Germany, and he showed a maximum security facility. I was like, wow, the apartments I've lived in aren't as nice as some of those cells, Um, which was really mind-blowing to me that, you know, you could have the same thing. And, you know, we're talking prisoners who were equally violent or or murderers um, that are in these, you know, places like in Norway. And I I get those are smaller countries. Um, You know, the other thing I I guess I'm curious about, you know, one of the things I learned was that there are people serving federal mandatory minimums for like marijuana possession that are, you know, the kinds of things that are literally happening on our streets for free and, you know, legitimate businesses now. So, I mean, from the perspective of law enforcement, I mean, what, you know, what is your opinion on all this? I, you know, I think we probably need some tweaks here and there. I'll go along with that. I'm not, I'm not into a massive prison system overhaul. Sure. So, yeah, I, w- I would agree that we need tweaks. And, and most of those tweaks are not as a result of how the prisons are being run. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's you know, if somebody's a three-time loser because he sold a, a gram of marijuana on the street and it's no longer illegal in Colorado – you know, those are legislative problems. Those are political problems. Mm-hmm. Those, aren't, those aren't penal system problems. Right. Um, so you, you, I agree that there are probably tweaks that are needed here and there. And, and you know, there's, there's a constant issue of, you know, are we housing violent offenders or are we housing white-collar criminals? And then you get to a very interesting argument. You know, a friend of mine who's an FBI agent, when he's counseling high school kids, he says, look, don't, you know, don't break the law. But if you do break the law, um, do white-collar crime because you won't go to jail for it. <laughs> and so combine that with what a, a banker friend of mine, um, his saying is, you know, give a kid a, he, a gun, he robs a bank, give him a banking license, he robs a country. Uh-huh. What's the greater harm? Who should we be incarcerating? Well, we have a a tendency to incarcerate our our violent offenders who might not actually be doing the most damage to society. So uh, I I would agree that there are always tweaks in the law that need to be made. So uh, the people who need to be locked up are locked up. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's get into why you're really here, which is to talk about all these concepts um, that we can learn from from hostage negotiation. Because, like I said, I I went through this and, you know, I went through your book, which we'll link up for everybody in the show notes. But um, I know there, you know, there's a principle behind each of these negotiations. So one, I think maybe the thing that would help is for people to understand how you have arrived at this conclusion. And then I'd love to go through each one of them and ideally and kind of do an example of each one, if that's possible. Sure, be happy to. All right. So how is it that you came to these these conclusions? Like what drove you to this conclusion about negotiation? Well, uh, you know, the first sort of epiphany moment was one one night on the suicide hotline. And I said, I said just three things to a guy who was, you know, although he wasn't suicidal, he might as well have been. He was a complete basket case. And I just, I just basically bounced back three different types of, two different types of emotions to him. And they had a massive effect instantaneously on him. And, you know, I bounced back two negatives and then a positive. And then he was good to go. And it was transformative for him in the moment. And, and he was uh, effusive at uh, how happy he was at the difference that I made. And on my end of the phone, I said, look, I, I don't know what the hell happened here. I just said three things. 
I bounced three things back and had a 180-degree change in his attitude and his plans for the next 24 hours. And I really thought about that a lot, and I thought, you know, this is just so ridiculously powerful. I've got to be able to adapt this to everything else because this has just got to be human nature. So how, how do I how do I move this from human nature into my business and, and really in my personal life at the time and start to move it into what I was doing as an FBI agent? And so I continued to experiment with it and adapt it and get better at it. And then that sort of circuitous route ended up uh, where I'm, I'm now an FBI hostage negotiator, not just a hostage negotiator. By this point in time, I've found myself as a lead international kidnapping negotiator. And we got a case that just uh, turned out, uh, and I write about it in a book, a Burnham Sombrero case in the Philippines. It turned out in a way I didn't expect. And it was you know, kind of a crushing moment for me professionally and the darkest moment of my, of my professional slash personal life when I found out the f- two out of the three remaining hostages were dead. I mean, I, I, to this day, I remember getting that call at 5.30 in the morning telling me people were dead. And and I just like at that point in time, I, I got to double down on this because I knew we did everything we knew how to do and it wasn't enough. So now we got to get better. We got to go someplace else. We got to find out how to get this better. And that's that's when I ended up at Harvard Law School and uh, negotiated my way into the negotiation course. And I showed up at, at, at the law school, you know, with the reputation of, you know, the brightest minds, Harvard Law. Got to be the smartest people on the planet. Um, let me negotiate with these guys, find out what these guys know. Uh-huh. Um, and what are, what are their secrets? It's got to be different. <laughs> and, and, so, and, so, and I revert to my hostage negotiation stuff in the exercises, and I'm killing these people. <laughs> I mean, the first negotiation I did, uh, the instructor, Sheila Heen, who's a very good friend of mine now, and a mentor and colleague and everything, Sheila Heen is a, is a remarkable human being. I remember her face got red and she laughed because <laughs> she felt so bad. She said, Chris, what were your results? You know, how did your negotiation come out? And I said, and wow, you know, and, and I just, I slaughtered this guy. And he, had, and he didn't know I slaughtered him. He was happy about it. He thought, he thought, until she laughed and her face turned red, um, you know, he didn't think the outcome was that bad. Uh-huh. So I do this to a couple of people in class, and finally, the and we always outbrief these in, in the class afterwards. And Sheila says, you know, because she figured out right what I was doing right away. I mean, she could see that it was completely different, and she had a great instinct for it. And she said, Chris, why don't you explain to everybody what you're doing? And my answer was, actually, I'd really rather not, because <laughs> if I tell them, they're going to know, and I don't want anybody to know what I'm doing. And it was, you know, there's great power and deference. And I'd learned that in hostage negotiation, that as soon as we ceded the illusion of control to the other side, we immediately had the upper hand on these guys. And we do it very innocently and very deferentially. And that puts you in a position to just walk them wherever you want to go. And so I and so once I started explaining what I was doing to the Harvard Law students and word got around. Then we started doing negotiation exercises, and they would just sit down with me, and they'd stare at me, and they wouldn't say a word. No matter what I said, they were scared to talk. <laughs> so then we started. Then they started deadlocking with me, and I was coming back with no deal, which is actually the problem that every tough negotiator runs into. 
um, you start deadlocking. And if you if you don't move on, you can no longer do business there. Which, interestingly enough, as a side note, if you if you take a close look at, you know, Donald Trump is the classic example of the aggressive negotiator. And he has a tendency to walk into a given environment and score four, five, six home runs in a row. And then he moves on. You know, he built he built some of the greatest buildings in New York City, some of the most phenomenal construction projects in New York City, starting in the mid 80s. And then he stopped building in New York City. And then he moved to Atlantic City, he put up several casinos, and he stopped operating in, in, in Atlantic City. And the, the assertive, tough, aggressive negotiator gets very addicted to this approach because they have phenomenal successes up front, and then people stop doing business with them. Mm-hmm. And if you can't move on, you got a problem. And I was running into that in, uh, in the Harvard Law School class because I had learned to be as aggressive as Donald Trump but in a very stealth, disguised fashion. And it, it took people a while to catch on, and then, then no one would do business with me anymore. So then I had to go back to the, the, the rapport building, what I now refer to as tactical empathy, mm-hmm. and, then, and then not slaughtering the other side. Um, and then I started to draw people out again, and then I, I began to see, you know, all right, so maybe you go from Donald Trump to Warren Buffett. You know, maybe you make phenomenal deals, but, you know, can you explain to me exactly what Warren Buffett does? Well, no, but he's a billionaire. He's one of the richest people on the planet, and everybody seems to like him, which is crazy. How, how can a guy be that likable and that wealthy at the same time? Because mostly we hate people that wealthy. wealthy. <laughs> you know, mostly like Walmart, phenomenal uh, phenomenal American success story, but somehow they they get bad mouth. Somehow Walmart is the evil empire. Somehow the uh, Sam Walton was a bad guy because they 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 are so ridiculously successful. Which is the downside of, of being that successful. People start taking shots at you. But but look at Warren Buffett. I mean, he's no less successful. Maybe even more successful. But everybody sees him as this nice, quiet, you know. The, the Wizard of Omaha, or however they refer to him. I mean, who doesn't like Warren Buffett? And I think that's ultimately where every negotiator wants to be able to evolve themselves to, which is this combination of, yes, being very assertive, but don't kill people and don't slaughter people and don't leave enemies in your wake. Mm-hmm. And I realize that was a bit of a rambling answer, but that's kind of how my thinking evolved. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, cool. Well, let's get into each one of these principles because, um, like I said, I got to do uh, a, you know, a pretty quick breeze over many of the principles in the book and, and did a fast read, but I'm going to go back and read it again because I was so blown away by all of this. But um, I know you break it down into a bunch of them. So, I mean, the first one being mirrors, I think another one being labels, mastering no. So could you walk us through each one of these with an example of each and how they might apply in our lives? How they might apply in our lives? Yeah. And so it seems like you want me to go a little bit further with this. Yeah, I actually want to do a deeper dive into each one of these specific principles and talk about an application of it in our lives. Okay, so I just did two of them to you right in a row. Okay. So the first thing I did was I mirrored you. Mm-hmm. And mirroring is just repeating the last three words of what somebody has said. And they have a great tendency to go on. I mean, it's it's this ridiculously simple skill. And if you understand mirrors and labels, you can, uh, people like it. It's rapport building. It's thought provoking. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons for using, using mirrors. They are the simplest and the most awkward skill of all. <laughs> and the design is to, again, to get the other side to go on. And in many negotiations, it's, it's what I refer to as a space between yes and no. Because if somebody throws a proposition on the table or somebody throws an idea on the table, the worst thing that you could say to that is yes. Um, The next worst thing you could say to it is no. (laughs) So instead of accepting or rejecting it, how do you expand on it? How do you get more out of it? How do you understand it? And in a mirror is a great thing, uh, substitute uh, of of saying, could you please go on? Mm Mm-hmm. Which somebody could say no to, or um, they're basically there. We have three caveman types that respond to conflict. The world, whether you're Chinese, whether you're African American, whether you're Latino, whether you're German, the world pretty much breaks into these three conflict types because they flow from our amygdala brain, if you will, the caveman brain, and our instinctive reaction to anything that we see new. Um, or something we don't understand is fight, flight, or make friends. Uh, you know, uh, is it going to eat me? Can I eat it? Can I mate with it? Mm-hmm. 
um, we can't get away from that. The world breaks up into those three types. I have sat with teams of Chinese businessmen, and if uh, you know if there's any any groups that there's stereotypes about. Uh, as far as Americans go, certainly we have a stereotype about Asian slash Chinese, about them being a type. And I've and I've sat and listened and seen all three types among Chinese businessmen. I've sat and listened and seen all three types among every segment of society. So the thing uh, about a mirror is that even though it, 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 it um, works effectively on all three types, now, there's some things that don't work effectively on all three types, but the mirrors and the labels are the only things that do. If I, a lot of businesses, uh, to ask a question, like the common salesman question is to ask a client, what is it that keeps you up awake at night? What are you worrying about that keeps you awake at night? And um, one of our three types doesn't like to be asked questions at all. And if they're asked a question, no matter how good the question is, they want to wait two days before they give you an answer because they want to think through every single possible aspect of the answer and what the implications of the answer are. And you never ask a question when you want an answer in two days. You ask a question when you want an answer now so you can move forward. Now, the mirrors uh, hack that process. Because using a mirror on any one of the three types either encourages them to go on or puts them in a mind frame where they will go on. The first time I used a mirror accidentally was in a bank robbery with hostages. And I mirrored the bank robber. And to explain further to me, he made a, a number of damaging admissions. A number of things started coming out of his mouth that he didn't mean to say. And he was a very guarded guy. Now, in the business world, I've got a colleague, uh, a client that we've coached. He mirrors the other side's position every single time. Anytime they take a position, anytime they make an offer, he wants to know how firm that is. And instead of saying, how firm is your position, which nobody's ever going to answer, he mirrors it. And based on their response, he can tell, and you can every time, because if they just say yes or no, that's a nice firm position. But if there's any waffle room, they'll start talking. And in between all that they explain, with that mirror, they're going to tell you where the space in their position is, where how it expands. So this mirror is this great tool, one of two of, of all of the nine skills that it's a one-size-fits-all. The other one is the label, which I did with you immediately on when I mirrored you the first time. Mm-hmm. You, in fact, gave me a yes, and and we both hesitated. I used an effective pause to see how far you were going to go, and you gave me just a yes, and you hesitated. So then I just did a follow-up label on labeling what you were after, and then you gave me a much longer, more expanded answer. So my mirror is going to crack nine out of ten people, nine out of ten times that I use it on. They're going to expand and go on. doesn't matter which caveman type they are. And the one in 10 that just gives me the one word answer, I'm prepared to follow on with the label. And because while you gave me a one word answer to the mirror, it didn't make you feel all that uncomfortable. You, it was still within the context of how we were talking. If I follow up with the label, you give me a much longer answer, which is exactly what happened in our interchange just a few moments ago. Hmm. 
Okay, so that takes us into mastering no triggers and bending reality. Um, can you talk about each one of those uh, and then kind of go through similar examples? Yes. No, mastering no triggers is just also ridiculous. It's 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 a it's a Jedi trick. Um, there are three kinds of yeses. To understand how to master the no triggers, you first got to understand yes. And there's commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit yeses. Those are the three types. Now, typically, we are pushed so much to give confirmation yeses that lead us to commitments that uh, a yes is typically a trap. So if I try to get you to say yes to something based on a closed in a question, your first thought is, what am I letting myself in for? Where is this going? He's obviously taking me someplace. I'm not sure I want to go. You begin to step back. You become defensive immediately. When defensiveness is triggered, you're not listening to me as much. Now, I first got onto this idea um, because a book that I read that had a lot of influence on uh, impact on my thinking back in 2002 was this book called Start With No. And I, the, the title stopped me in the tracks, in my tracks. I said, start with no. No is the enemy. I mean, how could you start with no? So I went and I got the book and I leafed through it. And the guy, Jim Camp, who became a friend, his whole philosophy was make the other side feel like it's okay to say no and they'll relax. And then they'll listen to you more. Just let them know it's okay to say no at any time, which, of course, is true. When you stop trying to trap the other side with yes, and you let them know from the very beginning they could pull back at any time, then they'll feel less trapped and they'll talk some more. Well, we decided to take it one step further, myself, the hostage negotiators I worked with, my son, Brandon, who's had uh, has been very involved in the thinking and the evolution of thought. And we said, what happens when you actually make somebody say no? And when we say no, no is protection. When my son was 17 years old and he'd start out a sentence and said, Dad, can I? I would say no before he even finished. And every single time that that happened, then I would say, having protected myself by saying no, I'd be more willing to listen. And I'd say, no, wait a minute, explain that to me again. What was it that you wanted? And I felt much more willing to listen once I said no. So let's take this a step farther. Can, they, can we flip the yes traps and ask the same question where the answer is no and the other person doesn't feel trapped? And I had a student in, in my class at Georgetown who rewrote a, a, a political fundraising cold calling script, which is get the, the person you call on the phone to say yes three times and ask him for a donation. And they flipped the first question from, do you want to take the White House back in November to have you given up on taking the White House back in November? And the second one is no. And people are willing to be led forward with that. And they got a 23% higher rate of donation with the no script than they got with the yes script. So we're finding over and over again on a regular basis that if you can trigger somebody into a no, they're typically much more willing to listen. And, and we now counsel people, if you've got somebody who's not returning your phone calls or your emails, send them an email that says, have you given up on this project? And you're going to get a no response nearly immediately. Don't be surprised if they, they email you back or call you within three minutes of having seen it because they feel so protected by the word that's no. And you can't do that by itself because, you know, that, that's not an unlimited supply of no's. Where you have to go after you've triggered a no is you have to get them to say that's right. Not your right and not yes. 
But the real path to agreement after you've triggered a no to sort of break the ice is when the other person feels like you've understood what they've said so much that they look at you and they say, that's right. Because that's what we say when we've just heard something that we believe is the indisputable truth. And the power behind that, I mean, we have solved more negotiations through that's right than probably any other approach. Hmm. What about bending reality? We individually distort reality based on our fear of loss. If I take $5, if I take $5 out of your pocket, you're going to feel like you lost 10, maybe even 20. If I give you $5, it's not going to feel that great. You're probably going to feel like maybe you gained 2 or $3. You're already distorting reality, the real value of that $5 bill, based on whether I'm putting it in your pocket or taking it out of your pocket. The $5 bill hasn't changed in value in any way, shape, or form. It's your perception of the transaction. So since I know that you're already bending reality based on gain and loss, and this this is probably the single most powerful emotional technique, and that's why we call it bending reality. I know that I'm much more likely to get you to do something if I can pose it in a way that the other choices cause loss. And that's particularly true of status quo. Like if I say, it's, and I, and I, uh, if I say I've got these retirement plans that I'm selling you, and they're better than the current retirement plans that you have, and if you switch over to my retirement plan, you're going to make 20% more rate, on retain, rate of return year on year, year on year, end on end, on a regular basis. If I pitch it as a gain, which is how most people pitch things, I'll get some takers on that, not that many. But if I say to you, Your current retirement plan is costing you this much every year. You are losing 15% based on your current retirement plan. So if you stick with the status quo and you do nothing, you're going to lose 15% over the next year. You're going to be like, holy cow, i got to make a change because there's avoidance of a loss. Instead of pitching my 20% gain... If I pitch a 15% loss by doing nothing, I will now just change your thinking and I will have bent your reality. And now I'm much more likely to get you as a client instead of me pitching the gain. And that's what bending reality is about. The, the, just this ridiculous emotional impact loss has on us. And then just getting behind that and understanding how it works. Hmm. All right. So that takes us into the illusion of control, execution, bargaining hard, and the black swan. So can we go all over all four of those? Sure. Uh, the illusion of control uh, and, and very much like a, a, a Donald Trump kind of negotiator or you know any hard-charging negotiator who wants to talk all the time, people who feel like they have to be in control of the dynamic, they have to talk, they have to never let things get out of control. Once you give the other side the illusion of control, then they drop their guard and relax. And so we typically do this by a good what or how question. Like, how do you want to solve these problems here is a great question to ask somebody because how is very powerful. It makes a person being asked the question 
um, feel very powerful because people love to be asked how to solve problems. What they don't realize is you just confine them in a very narrow way, and you can. And every time uh, they give you an answer that you don't like, you can just say, "Well, I, I really don't understand that. How are we really going to do it?" And they'll change their answer. And people love to be asked how and what questions. They're the two most powerful ways to give the illusion of control to the other side. And generally, you can ask the same person how to do something. Uh, simply rejecting what they've said four or five times in a row before they catch on. I mean, I actually had somebody do this to me recently. They were asking me for a solution. They had a very specific solution in mind. And instead of telling me the question, they said, well, how will this be done? And I give them an answer and they go like, no, 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 you know, I don't know. I don't know. How will this be done? And finally, they asked me the how question four times in a row. And, fi- and I finally said, look, it sounds to me like you got something specific in mind. And I got off of the phone afterwards, and I thought, wow, they just, they just walked me around for 25 minutes with how questions. They did it to me. I didn't even know they were doing it. <laughs> so, you know, this how do we do stuff is great for figuring things out. Um, it's, it's one of those things, use your powers for good and not evil. You know, the passive aggressive people that do not want to cooperate with us are really good at looking at us. You know, if we, we tell somebody what we want them to do in specific details and they look at us and they go, well, I don't understand. What do you want me to do? Uh, and having just told them, we don't realize we just told them because they asked us what when they're actually trying to avoid doing what we just told them to do. So it's, it's one of those things, the how and what thing is a phenomenal way to seed control in a very passive aggressive way where you've got the upper hand in the, in the dynamic. It can be used both for effective implementation. It can be also used for effective avoidance. You have to know that to uh, to know when it's being used against you and how you can use it appropriately for yourself. Now, at some point in time, you may have to get down to bargaining. Ideally, if you've used mirrors and labels and good how and what questions that are designed for implementation, you may have to bargain. You also may have to bargain with somebody still trying to kill you on price. Um, And that's when we get into, that's when I get into whether or not you anchor high, whether or not you go first in a negotiation. I don't like going first. Um... But if, you know, high anchoring is really effective, it's like getting punched in the nose. If you don't want to punch the other side in the nose, you have to be prepared to take a punch. And that's what we really get into in bargaining hard because it it might come down to brass tacks. And you make decisions as to whether or not you want to throw out a high anchor. High anchor, uh, you know, coming up with a, a really big ask or aiming high. A lot of people become addicted to that because it moves the parameters of the negotiation. What you don't see is it also makes a lot of deals just flat go away. If you anchor too high, the other side will walk away when there could have been a deal there that you could have made. And that's why I don't like going first and I'm careful with my high anchors because I think I should make a deal every time. Every now and then when somebody's really trying to lowball me, and I try to get them out of it a couple of different times. I'll say to myself, "All right, if you want to play this game, you know, let's let's get down to bare knuckle bargaining. You want to, you want to. Let's see if you can take a punch." And and my entire approach of tactical empathy 
if need be, has put me in a position for me to be very assertive with someone who's really trying to be very assertive with me. And that's what bargaining hard is about. You know, I, I, I we use the, uh, I'm not a Trekkie, but we use the Starship Enterprise as an example for this all the time. Because, you know, when, uh, when you see Star Trek, the Star Ship Enterprise was about exploring, about gathering information, about coming to the Starship Enterprise is about coming to a peaceful accommodation first. But if you don't come to a peaceful accommodation with a Starship Enterprise and you want to fight them, they're more than capable of fighting you. And that's what bargaining hard is about. As a last resort, be prepared to bargain hard with anybody who wants to be tough with you. And then that finally takes us to the end of the Black Swans, which is a little tougher thing for people to wrap their minds around because um, people want people hate getting caught off guard or people hate with the idea of there's stuff here that I don't know. But it's kind of this crazy overlap of if I'm hiding cards from you and everybody is in a negotiation, then the other side's hiding cards from me. And so there's going to be this crazy demilitarized zone overlap that neither one of us know anything about. You know, there's an area where our hidden cards overlap that we've got no idea what's in there. You're going to be in possession of some really valuable information that you have no idea is valuable to me. And vice versa. And the only way we're going to get to that is if somebody starts showing their cards to the other side and the other side has got the ability to start figuring out cards and you don't betray that. The more I trust you, the more willing I am to let you see what my cards might be because I'm afraid you're going to have this huge advantage of me. You're going to take me hostage if I tell you my secret information. So I really got to trust you or know what I can trust you with. And this entire approach, because that's where the brilliant deals are made. That's when the crazy ideas come up that make both of us rich and make other people want to do business with us. And the entire approach is really trying to get to that moment where we can find out where the gold mine is that neither one of us know is there. And that's that's the where negotiation really becomes this phenomenal thing that makes makes both of our lives better, makes us both professionally successful. And, and that's kind of where all this is going. So that negotiation is not a process to be afraid of, mm-hmm. but something that can to, can lead these these great benefits, these great results. So, you know, one of the things that came up for me, at least while I was reading this and, and just listening to you go over that, uh, was the thought of, okay, you know, it seems to me that one of the keys to all of this is also regulation of your own emotions. And if you don't know how to regulate them, you're you're going to have a difficult time being an effective negotiator. And I'm curious, you know, how do you manage the emo- regulation of emotion in such high stakes situations because I mean l- chances are I'm probably not going to be dealing with an international kidnapping situation fingers crossed anytime soon but I figure there's something to be learned from that as well yeah well um, yeah and there's kind of there's there's three hacks for that um, you know the, the, the first hack is in, in business 
Um, I'm rehearsing in my head a conversation I'm having, going to have with a, a business partner that 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 I allow myself to sometimes think negative thoughts about um, because I'm not sure whether or not the, the that they're dealing with me up and up. I don't a thousand percent know that I could trust this person. And I don't like dealing with people that I can't trust, even though I'm willing to do so. But when I can't trust someone, I start thinking negatively, and and then in my head everything's going bad. And I stopped myself and I said to myself, you know what, you're lucky to be in this conversation at all. The fact that you're having this conversation to begin with is an indicator of success. And, and I hacked all my emotions when I put myself into a mindset thinking like, this is actually really cool. And then I immediately came up with all the responses that I needed. So, you know, I know that I, I live in California these days and this gratitude is an overused expression. I'm so grateful for this. <laughs> I'm so grateful the sun is shining. I'm so grateful, you know, for all this nonsense. You hear people spouting gratitude constantly. But for a mercenary, gratitude is a hack because it puts you in a better frame of mind and gives you immediate control of your emotions. You're up to 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind than you are in a neutral frame of mind. You know, he who cares least wins only gets you to a neutral frame of mind. But as soon as you go like, wow, that's kind of cool. I'm lucky to be in this conversation. You're just giving yourself a 31% mental boost. So that's one way to hack your emotions. The next way to hack your emotions is to just focus on what the other side is thinking and feeling. Like uh, a weird thing that we found out is if I teach people, look, just focus on what emotion you're picking up from the other side. As soon as you think, are they angry? Are they anxious? You know, what am I picking up here? There's a weird switch that flips in our brain in a compartmentalization mode, which immediately drops all our emotions. I don't know why it works that way. I just know it does. So if you start focusing on how I'm feeling about the interaction, all the energy goes out of your own emotions and you become exceedingly rational in that moment. And that, that's a way to shortcut it. Now, as a hostage negotiator, the third thing way is I had just spent so much time on a suicide hotline that I knew the process worked. So once you're used to the process, you're no longer anxious about where it's going. It's, it's a little bit of the key to flexibility. You know, the secret uh, to negotiations is not being so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Mm -hmm. So I coach people in negotiations all the time. Just get your counterpart to say that's right and it'll be fine. And they'll say, yeah, but what's going to happen next? I mean, it'd be fine in what way? What do you mean? Now my answer would be, I don't know. It's going to be okay, though. And that's letting go of what you want so you can get something better. And uh, People have a real hard time with that. And typically, most people, it takes a lot of use of the process until if you've gotten four or five that's rights in different negotiations and every single time something really great happened, at that point in time, you're no longer worried about it. You say, yeah, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be good. That's when you become used to the process and you say, you know, let the negotiation bring the great deal to you. Um, get comfortable in a process and good things are going to happen. Now, when I became a hostage negotiator, I'd been on a suicide hotline for several years already. So I just, you know, I'd, I'd had it, you know, 
beaten into my DNA. If I just do my thing, things are going to be fine. And the first time I got on the phone was a bank robbery with hostages. And I wasn't the least bit rattled about what was going to happen because I, I, I was so comfortable with the process that it no longer mattered to me. It's kind of a Zen-like thing. And I know I sound very Zen, right? I'm a, I got a real Zen-sounding <laughs> voice. You know, not exactly. The, the New York City, my New York City days come out in, in, in my conversation. And I am, in fact, a very assertive per- person. So I'm assertive with the process because I know the process works so well. And that's actually the third way I keep my emotions under control. Wow. Really cool. Um, so I have a, a few more final questions. One is, you know, have you ever been in a situation where you literally have, you know, pulled out every bag, every, every trick you have in your bag and none of it is working? Like you reached an impasse where you can't get what like you're, you're unable to reach an outcome that is, you know, to your liking. Yeah. And I walk away. Okay. In, in business deals on a regular basis, actually, I, I we run into that somewhat when we uh, encounter representatives of larger organizations. You know, the bigger the organization, the longer they've been there, uh, the less flexible they are in approaches. And um, they either give you they they have uh, they're authorized to give you a certain limited number of things. Or getting them to change that is going to take a really long period of time. Um, so at, uh, I have a, I have an instinctive understanding of how hard it's going to get be to get them to change their position. Not that I couldn't get them to change their position, but how long it's going to take me. Mm-hmm. And if it if it takes me too long a period of time, I'm going to move on to another deal where I can get that much compensation or more, and it's not going to take that much time. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm a very big the my most precious commodity is time and i keep an eye on it fairly regularly now so i'm i'm fairly quick to walk away from deals because i know i can go someplace else and make a better deal you know what's so interesting to me about this is i feel like it could be applied to so many aspects of your life and i know you've covered some of that in the book like the guy who negotiated a, a upgrade airline ticket i keep my natural inclination is hum like i wonder how this could be applied to dating and relationships yeah, you know, and it got got to cut. It, it 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 works. It works in them as well. It works. Um, one of the negotiations we didn't put in was a, a husband and a wife negotiating over a Christmas tree. Uh-huh. And you know, the secret of uh, you know flexibility: never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Guy had all the reasons in the world for an artificial tree, and as soon as he found out why his wife wanted a real tree, he instantly switched. Wow! Because he knew it fit better into his life. Um, got another negotiation between uh, a guy and his fiance over what they were going to pay for for the wedding. And she wanted a complete open bar because she wanted to make sure all her friends had the best time possible. Uh-huh. And what he did was he reiterated back to her why she wanted the open bar and how it was important to her about all her friends have a good time and that they wanted their wedding to be a celebration of the union of two families and they wanted the uh, her friends to feel that and understand that they're union. And it basically, and that's what the key to getting a that's right is almost sound like you're trying to talk the other side into their position and out of yours. Uh-huh. But when they say that's right, they know that you completely understand. And then he said, okay, that's fine. And we're going to have to do less on our honeymoon because we have to pay for the open bar. And she went, what? Wait a minute. Hold on. 
You know, my friends are important to me, but I want our honeymoon to do this, this, and this. And, and immediately she said, we're not having an open bar. We're only paying for beer and wine, and they can pay for their, their own drinks. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. it, was, it was him understanding the process. Mm-hmm. And 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 helping her see everything, and then I, you know, I got I got, a, I got another student in a class who is sees this beautiful girl in a bar, and there are guys all around her, and he just uses a couple quick mirrors and labels to do a, a quick drive by, so to speak, and then later on when she talks to him. Uh, she says, well, why don't you hang around? And he said, well, everybody else was talking to you. You know, I didn't want to waste your time. And a couple mirrors and labels later, and he's got her phone number. So, yeah, it does work in dating and relationships, and it's predicated on, you know, use your powers for good and not evil, because it is, it is really powerful stuff. Mm. All right. Uh, two final, a couple final questions for you. We'll wrap things up. Um, what are your daily habits, routines, rituals like? I mean, you know, like most of the people I interview are artists or creators of some sort. And I know you're a writer in this case, but you're also an FBI hostage negotiator. So I'm curious what a day in the life is like for you, like a typical day. Well, you know, I, I, I get up, try to put myself in the right frame of mind. So because I uh, for mercenary reasons, mm-hmm. um, you know, the gratitude frame of mind. It's going to make me sharper throughout the entire day. So I got to admit, I'm doing a little bit of Tony Robbins stuff to start out my day to try to get my day started off so that I can get up to speed quickly and then maintain that speed. Some, some gratitude, some, some nutritional issues, a couple things to try to get rolling. And then I try to be as effective as possible. I, you know, I like to talk to a lot of people. Uh, I, I know, uh, having studied this now in the business world, uh, so much more. I know that my brain is only capable. The brain is only capable of so many given decisions in a given day. So the creative time, the writing time. If I've got material that I have to produce today, I need to do it in the morning because I'm not going to be as sharp later in the day. You know, anecdotally, uh, same thing happens across the board. If you're up for, if you're in prison and you're up for parole, make sure you get in front of the parole board in the morning. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to let you out in the morning. In the afternoon, they're going to be tired. They're going to stamp rejected on it. Um, that's true across the board. That's human nature. So I will. I, I try to preserve my mental resources for my high value activities, which to me might be writing something new, writing a blog posting, writing for my newsletter, writing some new material. And I'll try to do that early in the day. Um, and then my day, I think, very, very much these days mirrors uh, what an effective businessman is going to want to do, which as a hostage negotiator, that's what I was doing at the same time also. Um, you know, preserve the mental resources where you can, make sure you take breaks and try to find a way. I want a day that end to end, I'm, getting, I'm enjoying my day and I'm, and I'm moving forward productively. So I try to manage my brain as much as possible and minimize the low value activities, which is multitasking is the worst thing you could do for your brain. Uh, uh, the only thing worse than multitasking is watching TV. <laughs> you know, and we watch TV because we're trying to recharge. Um, and you need to recharge. And sometimes you multitask because you you're, you go from, I like looking at Facebook. I like catching up on my friends. And I'll bounce back and forth because I'm trying to give myself a, my brain a break from what I'm writing. But that bouncing back and forth is 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 one of the worst things I could do for my brain. So I'm trying to minimize that. 
So that's kind of my day. Very cool. Um, so what is one book that you would say has profoundly influenced your life? Well, uh, real trigger turning points in my thinking came when I read Start With No back in 2002. Okay. Um, every negotiator, to be effective, you have to come to grips with the word no. And that was begin- the beginning of me com- to no longer be a hostage of yes. You have to understand no and not fear it. And that was the beginning of that. And there's still some good stuff in that that I really like. And I go back and check on it on a regular basis. Um, Adam Grant has got a book out now called Originals that I really like. Yep. Adam is a brilliant guy. And pretty much anything that he's written is worth reading. So I I really like that book and and I uh, refer people to it a lot. Uh, my my co-author, Tal Raz, he was a co-author on one of the other best business books ever written. <laughs> and Never Eat Alone, mm-hmm. uh, published back in 2005, Keith Ferrazzi. Yep. You know, how to network with integrity and why to network. And again, a very gratitude-oriented guy. And I don't think anybody should not have that book in your library. Um, Never Eat Alone is a phenomenal book on on life in general, let alone uh, networking with integrity and effectiveness. So I like that book a lot as well. All right. So one final question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, um, just a a real authenticity um, and that they are just completely true to who they are. And then I think they should be people should be fearless about who they are, who they are authentically. And so it's, yeah, uh, yeah, everybody's got something special they were put on the planet for, whether it's washing dishes or, you know, whether, whether it's hosting a podcast. And so when people can kind of find that and then just get into it and be fearless about it, no matter how nerdish it might make them appear to the rest of the world. And when someone is just like so completely into who they genuinely are, then I find those people unmistakable. Hmm. Well, this has been just uh, incredible, really, really fascinating and eye opening. Um, I'm really thrilled that, you know, you were referred to us as a guest. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, the website, blackswanltd.com. Okay. B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Um, find out about the book. Find out about, we get a ton of stuff that's complimentary, a twice a month newsletter for getting short digestible pieces of negotiation ideas. Um, cue yourself up in the morning. I mean, find a, help let me find a way to make your life better. Uh, I I get the biggest kick when somebody sends me an email and says like, man, I cut this great deal. Never would have been able to do it without you. That's that's what I'm really um, excited about, helping other people get better. And the website is a good, is a good place to start. Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share all this with our listeners. That's been just awesome. It was a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. You had me talking at length. So good job. Well <laughs> I've done. I've been known to do that to people. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, 
maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.